0: Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the problem of P versus NP is so difficult to solve, there's a $1 million prize on offer from the Clay Mathematical Institute for the first person to come up with a solution. At its heart is the question, are there problems for which the answers can be checked by computers but not found in a reasonable time, or can all answers be found easily as well as checked, if only we knew how? It's intrigued mathematicians and computer scientists since Alan Turing in the 1930s found that some programmes... Given a problem could run indefinitely without finding the answer. That's as true of today's supercomputers as it was in his day. Resting on P versus NP is the safety of online banking and all online transactions which are currently secure. If answers can be found as easily as checked, computers could crack passwords in moments. To solve thousands of practical problems is also in sight. With me to discuss, but not perhaps solve the problem of P versus NP, I call Veroni Dougal, reader in Pure Mathematics at the University of St. Andrews Timothy Gowers Royal Society Research Professor in Mathematics at the University of Cambridge and Leslie Ann Goldberg Professor of Computer Science and Fellow of St. Edmund Hall University of Oxford Colver Roney-Dougall what was Alan Turing doing in 1936 that led him to this
1: Alan Turing was interested in trying to solve some problems in the foundations of mathematics and how that links in with this is he started thinking about how you could define whether or not it was possible to solve a problem and this led him at the bright young age of 22 to essentially invent our modern notion of a computer. It was a little while before computers were actually built but he defined an abstract machine that we now call a Turing machine and said that the properties it needed to have is that it should be able to read input... It should be able to write output and it should be able to decide what to do based only on what state it was in then and what symbol it was looking at. That ought to be enough to define what it's going to do at the next step. Now, that model of a computer, the Turing so that machine, an ima- it just, just a, an imaginary an imagined, yeah.
0: machine,
1: imaginary machine yeah. he had just finished his undergraduate degree. He was looking around for problems to think about and he decided that uh, he would start thinking about algorithms or methods in mathematics, and for that he needed a machine to run his algorithms. Now, one of the first things he realised, given his imaginary machine, this is just a lemma in his paper was that one such machine can pretend to be any other machine. You can just give it the description of the other machine and it can simulate that machine. So that meant that we've only ever needed one mathematical model of a computer ever since, essentially. So when we start talking about the difficulty of solving problems, we're always, when it comes back to it, imagining one of Alan Turing's machines. You mentioned algorithms twice. What is an algorithm? (laughs) Algorithm. One of the funny things is there's no good mathematical answer to this. So an algorithm is a collection of steps for solving a problem. So, for example, a good recipe is an algorithm. If it's well written, it gives you a clear, unambiguous...
0: Cooking something.
1: Yeah. yeah, dice the onions, fry them for 10 minutes over medium heat. That's a set of instructions that's hopefully reasonably unambiguous. Um, instructions for how to build flat pack Why furniture. Why not just
0: call instructions, then, instead of an algorithm?
1: Um, the thing with an algorithm is it should be a sequence of instructions that might require you to go back to some previous step. You don't just work your way once through it. You might need to go back to some earlier stage, depending on what's happening. So it's a method is maybe one way of thinking about it rather than just a sequence of instructions. Um, So, for example, you learn how to add up numbers by adding up the digits and keeping track of the carries. That's an algorithm algorithm. It's going to work on any particular why are you input. Why just doing
0: maths? I mean, we do that, did that at school, didn't we? Ca- did carries and added mm. numbers.
1: Exactly. So you were following an algorithm at exactly that point. Your teacher had taught you an algorithm for addition, involving knowing how to add single-digit numbers and remembering the carries, and you were following your teacher's instructions. I'm not trying to be prickly, but just
0: finally, what is the advantage of calling it an algorithm, and why does algorithm why is algorithm so universally appropriate in the work you're doing?
1: Um... An advantage of calling it an algorithm rather than just a sequence of instructions is the idea that within an algorithm, you might want to loop. I mean, it's partly just a fancier word, right? (laughs) But you might want to go back to the beginning and start again, depending on whether or not something's happened. So normally in a cooking recipe... Uh, if it turns out that you've burnt the onions you might need to go back to the beginning and start again. Whereas with a computer algorithm uh, I might be wanting to do something like find a number in a sorted list of numbers and the instruction might be look at the middle number is it bigger or smaller than the one you want? If it's bigger than the one you want look at the middle of the next step down. There's no it, it's a repeating thing there. Keep looking in the middle and going bigger or smaller depending on the answer. You don't necessarily immediately know how many steps it's going to take.
0: It's not a word that Turing himself used.
1: I don't think
0: so, but we I wouldn't don't think swear so, to that. But maybe we get we get no nods around the table, so we all don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> One minute. Can I come back to you in a, in a moment? All right, uh, t- uh, Tim. Tim guys To understand this P versus NP, we need to understand. Are two words, polynomial time and exponential time, the difference between them. Now, can you tell us about polynomial time and why that's important?
2: Yes, that, that presumably is the P. It is indeed, yes, and NP as it turns out stands for non-deterministic polynomial. I'm not going to tell you why that's the case. Um, when people actually started building computers, and in fact they realised this before, um, they came to realise the focus slightly changed from whether there is an algorithm or a systematic procedure for solving some problem to whether there is such an an algorithm or systematic procedure that can solve the problem within a reasonable amount of time. So it turns out that there are quite a lot of problems for which it's very easy to write down an algorithm. The only drawback with the algorithm is that if you program your computer to run the algorithm, it would take a trillion years or something like that. And if you've got something like that, you might as well just not have an algorithm. So the focus shifted very much to whether you have practical algorithms or not. And roughly speaking, P stands for the class of problems for which there is a practical algorithm, an algorithm that can run in a reasonable time. It's not exactly the, the, the technical definition, but it's the main point. So you could think of P as standing for practical instead of <laughs> polynomial, and NP is one... Uh, sorry, uh, exp, so uh, polynomial is... Um, Practical, And then exponential is un- impractical. So with some algorithms, if you just... Uh, so a typical algorithm or a systematic procedure will take in some input. might be a couple of numbers that you want to multiply together or something like that. And the input can have different sizes. The numbers could have lots of digits or not so many digits. And what you're really interested in is the length of time the algorithm takes and how that scales up as the size of the input increases. So let's, t- let's so- deal
0: with a polynomial, for instance, for a moment or two. You... This is the, the this is this is the way you get results you can put a problem in and you can get result and you can check it in 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 a few seconds nanoseconds whatever it is.
2: Yeah, so an example so It is very of, useful. It is indeed. So an yeah. example of a of a polynomial time um algorithm is long multiplication. If you take two numbers of 100 digits, then roughly speaking to multiply it, those two numbers together, the number of steps will be about 100 squared because each digit of one number has to be multiplied by each digit of the other number. And because um, x squared is a polynomial, we say that it's... As I'm getting slightly more technical. We, we say that that would be a polynomial time algorithm. Um, an exponential one would be something where, as the input increases in size, the time it takes doubles, let's say. Each time you increase the number of digits by one, if the if the time you take doubles, then very rapidly it's just going to blow up out of control. So... Um, when you've got a polynomial time algorithm as long actually I could qualify this slightly but broadly speaking if you have a polynomial time algorithm it corresponds to something that you can actually program on your computer and get it to work in practice in a reasonable time
0: Is exponential always something that can be checked if it's solved but is very difficult sometimes to solve, difficult sometimes in the sense of taking far too long like you've mentioned in some of the notes you mentioned billions of years to solve but anyway a long time too long to live, too long to see your life
2: out yeah, so exponential time algorithms will be ones that will take... Uh, the input size doesn't have to be very large before the algorithm would take billions of years. Checking, that's uh, a slightly different thing. So that's yeah. where, where NP comes into all this. Um, there are certain problems which are search problems where you're trying to find something and you can think of it as a sort of uh, a needle in a mathematical haystack. And um, sometimes it's easy to check... An answer if someone tells you the answer so somebody can tell you, they can say I think this is the answer and then you can go away and do a simple calculation and verify that it really is the answer if that's the case we say that the problem is in NP but just because it's easy to verify that the answer is correct that doesn't necessarily imply that it was easy to come up with the answer in the first place so that's the distinction between P and NP. P is things that are easy to, to do full stop and NP are things that are easy to check as long as somebody gives you a massive hint basically. But if you can check it, does that mean you, you've also solved it? Uh, it does, once you've got the thing that you need to check. Once somebody tells you the thing you need to check and you go ahead and check it, you've solved the problem. Well, how have they got there, if you can't get there by... Well, <laughs> usually, uh, for, for many problems of interest, they just will not have managed to get there. We're sorting slightly in, in fantasy world here. When... So exponential uh, explanations are, are defeating uh, computers, mostly... Yes, I think, broadly speaking, exponential means hopelessly impractical.
0: Broadly hopeless, right. Uh, Leslie Goldberg, um, we're now moving to complexity theory to work out which problems are quick out. Why is it so hard to distinguish between, let's call it fast and slow?
3: Okay, so I'm going to give you some examples to tell you about that. But the short answer is that most of the problems that we look at, the obvious algorithm is exponential. So there's exponentially many possibilities. It's just that for some problems, there's a clever way to narrow them down and find the right one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a few examples. And the examples are all problems where the obvious algorithm is exponential. And the point of the examples will be to illustrate how subtle the difference is. And some of them, you know, they're the special clever algorithms, and some there aren't. And the really hard thing is finding the difference. Okay, so let me start with a couple of problems that are actually easy. They're, um, they're polynomial time, what Tim was talking about, polynomial practical good. Okay, so here's the first one. Let's say you have a group of n people, and you want to match them up into pairs. This is called the matching problem, okay? Okay. And you know compatibilities. So Colva Melvin are compatible. Some people are incompatible. And all you want to do is take people and put them in teams to work together. But you, you want to know, can you do this in such a way that nobody's left out? Everybody's with somebody that's compatible. Okay. If you just looked at how many different pairings there were... It's exponential. And just to give you a kind of scale of that, if you had even 100 people, the number of possibilities is more than the number of atoms in the universe. I mean, you just you cannot look at them all. But
0: You can't a, pair up 100 people into compatible, into uh, 50 compatible units without it taking uh, more and more, more time than, than let, atoms let in more, the universe?
3: Yeah, sorry, I wasn't very clear. The, um, the point is that the number of different pairings that there are, if you look at the number of possibilities that's more than the number of atoms in the universe Mm. now obviously an exponential DOM algorithm might just consider every possibility and say oh is this possibility good are all the people that were paired compatible no let's try the next one no let's try the next one that's ridiculous but this is actually an easy problem, because we do know a polynomial time algorithm, and in fact, we've even known it since the 1960s, uh, due to Jack Edmonds. So, that's an easy problem. And now, let me...
0: Just a second. Okay. First of all, gonna take... it's going to take... It's very, very complicated, or at least... <coughs> And now it's very easy.
3: Right. So um, um, let me try. Um, So the point is, the number of solutions is huge. Yeah.
0: So if you... We've all got that.
3: Okay, we've all got that. So if you just blindly look at one solution, the next, the next, the next, that would take forever. Yeah. However, that's not a good idea. There are smarter ways to solve the problem. And there is a clever algorithm which it would take more than 43 minutes to explain that does something else, okay, and manages to find a good pairing. It doesn't just look at every possibility, it cleverly constructs the best one. Right. Okay.
0: Now, this this technique has applications in DNA sequencing, in all sorts of areas of science, doesn't it? It moves into that area.
3: Ah, um,. Can I defer the DNA sequencing, because that's, that's well, another... We've got,
0: to, we've got to move on quite quickly, but, but if you can do that one, it will be a help to show, okay. to show how, how it can penetrate what, what people will think of as serious science and Perfect. serious matters. Perfect. Okay.
3: okay, so we're, we're going to be discussing um, a class of problems called NP-complete problems, and that will we'll be covering things such as the travelling salesman problem. We're
0: coming to that. So yes, this is and based DNA sequencing... what you've just said, yeah.
3: Right, and DNA sequencing will be an application of that.
0: And so it'll, be, it'll, it'll feed into that and, and all sorts of other work being done at the face of, of, of contemporary science. That's right. Right. OK, Colbert, right. Now, we're talking about problems now. The fact... Are we, are we where we should be in this conversation? Roughly. OK. <laughs> and, right, let's talk about the factorization problem, Colbert, and over to you.
1: Right. So...
0: What is it and why is it important and how can you solve it?
1: What is it? Let's start with that. Let's begin there. So um, it's a lovely fact about whole numbers that's been known, at least since the Greeks, if not before, that uh, there's these special set of whole numbers called the prime numbers. And the thing with the prime numbers is that the only numbers that divide them are one and themselves. So 2, for example, is prime because 1 divides it and 2 divides it, but nothing else does. 17 is prime because 1 divides it and 17 divides it, but nothing else does. But 6 isn't prime because 2 and 3 both divide it and they're not 1 or 6. So it turns out that any whole number can be divided up into primes and that if I insist those primes come out in increasing order, then there's only one way to do it. So let me show you an example. If you think about, say, the number 12, Well, 2 divides it and 2's prime. And once I've divided by 2, I've got 6 left and 2 goes in again. So I've got 2 times 2 and then I've got 3. And because I insisted on putting them in increasing order, there's only one way of breaking 12 down. That's 2 times 2 times 3 and we're done. Now... For small numbers, it's quite easy to see how to factorise them into primes. You can probably do 12 in your head. And if I asked you a bigger number, like, I don't know, 143 or something, you would think about it for a bit, and then you might get to 11 times 13. But for big numbers, it's very, very hard. There's a story of... What's a
0: big number in your writing? Oh, 200 digits. Fine.
1: Uh there's a there's a lovely story of uh this is back in 1903 the mathematician Cole there was a number that was believed to be prime which was 2 to the 67 minus 1 and he walked into the uh lecture theater and without saying a word he wrote 2 to the 67 minus 1 and then I'm not going to recite it because it's a 21 digit number but he wrote out that 21 digit number and then he wrote equals and then he wrote a 12-digit number and a 9-digit number and he proceeded to multiply them with long multiplication as Leslie was talking about earlier. No questions. This was the end of that problem. So that's what factorisation into primes is and it's got this property that it's easy to check the answer. If I give you the answer, you can multiply them. Why is it important? Yeah,
0: that's what I wanted to know.
1: All modern cryptography is essentially right. based on the fact that if I multiply together two very big primes, that's easy to do. If I just give you the answer, you can't find the two very big primes easily. So
0: you can't go um, backwards in that sense? You can't
1: go backwards. It's a one-way thing. Multiplication is easy.
0: 3,000 billion centuries or something like that.
1: We believe you can't go backwards, yeah. let's be precise here. But we hope silly. you it can't go an backwards. It
0: takes amount of time and you may get that in an inordinate amount yes.
1: of Yes. I mean, yeah. we don't know anything... That much faster than cleverly checking lots of possibilities mm. at the moment, and that's what's slow.
0: Okay, Tim Gowers. Now let's move on to NP-complete
2: problems. Right. So the NP problems um, are these ones where it's easy to check. So this factorization is a very good example of an NP problem. Um, if I actually, if so, so suppose we've got a two hundred digit number, and the challenge is to find two 100-digit numbers that multiply together to give the 200-digit number. That is very, very hard, as Colver has just said. But if someone tells you two 100-digit numbers and says, I think those might work, then it's much easier to check. You just go go away and do a, a quick... I mean, a, program, a computer would need to do it for you, really, because multiplying 100-digit numbers by hand <laughs> is not so easy, but a computer can do it very easily. Uh, so that's an NP problem. And... A bit of a miracle occurs, something that has no, re- no real right to um, be the case, which is that there are a lot of NP problems that turn out to be of equivalent difficulty in the following sense that if you've got a good method for solving one of them, then by a completely non-obvious process, you can convert it into a good way of solving one of the other problems. Um, the integer factorization is not actually one of these NP-complete problems, but uh, I'm sure we will at some stage discuss ones that are. But well, can you just give us a hint now? It's too tantalising to leave. <laughs> um, well, there's one which is uh, the so-called travelling salesman problem, are we coming which, to which we're coming to. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> So maybe we, should, uh, maybe perhaps I should just uh, stop for a moment, and we can come, we have these examples, and then we can talk about the sense in which they are NP-complete. But uh, just the thing, what I'm saying here is something that's uh, really not obvious in the sense that. Uh, If you look at you, you can get two problems that look completely different, Um, and it turns out that if you had a good way of solving one of them, then you could just you could use it, for example, to uh, factorize integers when the problem itself looked as though it had absolutely nothing to do with integers. Leslie Goldberg, give us the traveling salesman problem.
3: Okay. So the traveling salesman problem you've got a bunch of cities and you've got distances between the cities and now the question is you want to you have some start city and what you have to do is work out the shortest path for starting at that city visiting every other city exactly once and coming back to start so that is an NP-complete problem, or more formally, the decision version of it is. But anyway, it's it's as hard as everything in NP. So the amazing thing is, if you could solve that problem, you could solve factoring, as Colva said, and as Tim was explaining, you could also solve every other problem in NP. And there are thousands, there are three thousands of them. So if you could find
0: no, please, you're just, uh, sorry, just sorry, So you. if you
3: could find a polynomial time algorithm for that, you would solve the whole of NP. Now,
0: people sitting around at the moment are saying, look, I'm going to start in London. I'm going to visit 10 different cities uh, and I'm not going to repeat any of them. I'm going to end up in London. It isn't all that hard. What makes it hard?
3: Uh, you need the shortest route.
0: Ah, right. You didn't say that. (laughs)
3: That, Okay.
0: (laughs) Excellent.
3: So, And here's the answer now to your DNA sequencing, is that if you could solve the um, travelling salesman um, problem, DNA sequencing is one of the applications of that. So, for example, I talk about cities, but you could say a city is a DNA fragment. I talk about distance between the cities, but you could say the distance is some kind of similarity measure between DNA fragments. So if your goal was to take a bunch of fragments and put them in order... As um, biologists want to do, then you might well use an algorithm for the um, traveling salesman problem because you want to put all the fragments together and you you want the big closest overlaps on each piece I, I think I get <coughs>
0: excuse me, I think I get that, but I still haven't got what makes it so very difficult
3: right so. What makes it so difficult? Well, first of all, there are exponentially many possibilities. So a dumb algorithm certainly won't work. And the simple truth is that we don't know a clever algorithm. We don't even know whether one exists. So we we don't know any... The number of possible routes between the cities is exponential. So if if you just tried them, it would take billions of years to look at them all. And we don't know whether there's a clever way to find the shortest one without trying them all. We just don't know.
2: I think if you just think about Tim. sort of five cities or something, then it doesn't seem very hard. So maybe a way of making it sort of appreciating the difficulty is just to imagine you have 200 cities and you want to find the smallest route. Then I think it becomes a bit more um, mm-hmm. plausible that that would be a hard problem.
0: The rule is you don't visit the same city twice and you end up where you started
2: and there's a time limit.
3: Well, you've, you've got to dis- just
2: find out whether there is a way of doing it that's yeah. not, um, not, too long. not too long.
3: A distance limit, like maybe you can only travel at most
1: 200 miles in total. Yeah. The BBC has you on a specially tight travel budget, and you need to get round all of the capitals cur- of all of the countries. It's curious
0: how this can you, as you say, that that goes into work on genes, and I, I I'd love to know more about this. Carl, but let, let's have another illustration because the interesting thing about these illustrations is that they're very common or garden. garden, yes. aren't they? Uh, I mean hundreds of travelling salesmen, hundreds of, of, of plays about travelling salesmen, and now we're going to talk about a wedding seating plan as being <laughs> integral to this great mathematical <laughs> problem. I mean, you think these two things not supposed to go together, but there they are, there you are.
1: Well, so yes, let me give you a very frivolous problem. You're you're hosting a wedding, and... But um, hold on just a second, yep. to be
0: fair. It isn't frivolous if you get it right, because as Tim has said, if you get that right... Um, all hundreds and hundreds of other things fall into place because by some subterraneous method, subterraneous method, it all clicks together.
1: Absolutely. Right. So so this is dressed up to be a, <laughs> a silly problem, but solving it would be just as important as solving travelling salesman because you'd have done the same thing. So I'd like you to imagine that you're organising a very large wedding. What's large? Ooh, let's say 150 guests sitting right. down to dinner and that you've got a big long table to sit them all down. And that... Uh, you know that quite a few of your guests absolutely loathe each other. They must not be sat so next to each other. Season. This is a typical <laughs> wedding, guest. There's various factions in the various families. And you're trying to come up with a seating plan such that nobody is sat next to anybody that they loathe, because that's going to make for a bad evening for everybody. Um, this turns out to be another one of these problems that are very hard to solve but easy to check. I mean, you check by looking to see whether anyone sat next to anyone they hate. You just work your way around the table saying, no, that's OK, that's OK. I think they're on speaking terms, that one's fine. Um, but if you imagine trying to do that from scratch, well, with 10 people, you'd be looking at about 900,000 different ways you could arrange them around... 300,000 ways you could arrange them around the table and the number gets bigger and bigger and bigger. With 100 people, we're up to the more electrons than there are in the solar system until the sun burns out working away trying to solve the problem for you. Why is it so big this problem? I mean I'm baffled that, that Well imagine you decide that you're going to be sat at the head of the table and there's 100 people, Well, there's 99 choices for the person on your left, and then there's 98 choices for the person on their left, and then there's 97 choices for the person on their left, and you multiply all those numbers together, and you get a massive, massive number. Now, you can see that this problem's the same as Leslie's travelling salesman problem, because let's imagine that the cost of sitting two people next to each other that hate each other is a million pounds, and the cost of sitting two people next to each other who get on is a penny then working out if I could sit those people around the table such that nobody hates their neighbour is exactly the same as saying, can I seat these people around the table at total cost of a pound? Right. So if you could solve the travelling salesman problem, you could solve my problem. Oh,
0: can you take that on, Tim? I mean, it's, 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 as it's being said, it's clear. I have no idea whether I remember it tomorrow lunchtime, but still, can you take that on, that idea of, of, of these these apparently ordinary problems which people get through every weekend, seating people, uh, are so, when you think about it, so difficult. And in that difficulty, the solving of that difficulty will open up a whole realm of solutions to problems which affect the
2: the deepest parts of experimental science. Yes, so there are a couple of things that it's important to understand. So one is that when we take one of these practical problems, the first thing you do as a mathematician is abstract out. You try and strip it of all its details, like what the wedding table looks like and that sort of thing and convert it into a purely abstract mathematical problem. So the mathematical problem in this case is you will have a network. The network consists of some nodes and maybe some links between some of the nodes. And these nodes and links can represent all sorts of things. So nodes could represent cities, and links could represent roads between the cities, or the nodes could represent people, and links could represent uh, whether it's okay to put those two people next to each other at a a wedding. Um, So once we've turned it into into an abstract problem, we can then uh, take it a little bit outside the realm of the practical. We can make these networks get larger and larger, and actually when we study it abstractly, we, we think... we've got a network with n nodes where we think of n as just some very large number and then we're interested in how the difficulty of solving the abstract problem scales with n. Um, So once you've sort of slightly left the real world behind, I think it then becomes more plausible that these problems should be very hard. If you you present it in the abstract form and look at it, there's just no reason to suppose that it would be an easy thing to do and in many cases, as far as we know, it isn't an easy thing to do. Uh,
0: Leslie, Leslie Goldberg, how... Final line is there between the problems that can be solved and those which become NP-complete, unsolvable?
3: Often, you only have to change a very small thing. So um, let me go back to the problem that I introduced first about taking N people and pairing them up into pairs. So the way I describe that to you, we have N people, we have compatibilities. N between
0: meaning any number of people. Any I'm number. Not. So right, N right. is the number of people.
3: Yeah. And we have compatibilities between them. We know who loathes who. And um, we want to pair them up so everybody gets matched to one other person with whom he or she is compatible. That's in P. That's easy. Now, suppose I change it just slightly, and I say we've still got N people and we've still got compatibilities, but now what I want to do is split them into groups of three, so that within each group of three, there's complete compatibility. That's NP complete. So when we move from two to three, it goes from easy to NP complete. Why is that? Why is that? Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it, uh, it, it simply is. <laughs> well, what if a gang of people like each
0: other? They all like each other. Oh, ah, If they all like each though. other, yeah. if,
3: if everybody likes each other, it's, it's um, easy. And that's actually a really good point. So these problems, why they're hard, and, and maybe actually we should have explained this, why they're hard is because you have to solve every single input. So what we want is an algorithm which, if you give me N people and you give me the set of compatibilities between them, which could be anything, I've got to give you the pairing into threes. Now, that's hard. If you happen to give me a compatibility that says everybody's compatible, I'm going to have an easy job. I'm just going to say, fine, pair them up how you like. And so the hard thing is that the algorithm has to work in polynomial time, no matter what instance you give. It has
0: so, to work quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. very practical. That's right. Yeah, I mean, coming back to the uh, the wedding table thing, if almost everybody got on with everybody and there was just a couple of known hatreds within your extended family, it would be quite easy. But e- if each of them hated roughly half of the other people, then it would become considerably more difficult.
0: So, Tim, are we talking here about about these being examples of things not working out, which are sort of universally applicable to the way great problems in, or even greater problems than a wedding, great problems in science are not working out because of similar or allied uh, difficulties So I'm intrigued by what you said earlier uh, in the programme, where you said well if we could solve that, we could solve
2: thousands of other problems, the one is linked to the other, we don't know how Well we do know how the problems that are NP-complete are linked together um, so I think maybe this ha- doesn't have ramifications for the difficulties that we're having when we do science as opposed to mathematics. So what we have here is a very precisely defined class of problems called the NP problems, and inside those there's another very precisely defined subclass of problems, the NP-complete problems. And there's a well-understood, actually, method of reducing any NP problem to any given NP-complete problem, by which I mean if you can solve the NP-complete problem, you can solve the NP problem. Um, and it also is the case that um, a a very large number of problems that actually come in practice turn out to be NP problems so the ramifications if one could prove that P does equal NP that would be saying that things that are easy to check are actually easy to find would be enormous because you'd suddenly be able to solve a vast number of problems that at present we think you can't solve actually people by and large I think don't think that's going to be the case but uh, at least if we can't rule it out there is still this tantalising possibility that somebody could just come up with an algorithm for the travelling salesman problem that would just revolutionise the way we uh, do find algorithms in general. So would you agree with that consensus, Colwell?
1: Yeah, there was a poll done recently in 2012 and about 80% of the people who answered the poll reckoned that it was not the case that P is equal to NP, reckoned that P is not equal to NP. A smallish number think that they are equal. Um, And some people consider the intriguing possibility that it might actually be independent. We might be able to set up different systems of mathematics, in one of which P is equal to NP, and another of which P is not equal to NP, but that's a definitely minority view.
0: Does that mean you've hit a brick wall in this area, then, Leslie? Um...
1: I wouldn't say a brick wall. I mean, there's a lot of
3: progress that's made. It's just very slow progress. So what I'd like to do is maybe put it in um, perspective. So this yeah. this problem, it's a mathematical problem. It's been around since about 1970. Of course, in 1970, people probably thought it would be, you know, 1971, after Cook's paper, people probably thought it'd be resolved in a year or two. However, if we look at the history of mathematics, some problems take a lot longer to solve. So, for example, if you look at Fermat's theorem, right, I mean, that was... Um, Conjectured, or, you know, by thir- Fermat, the famous thing about the margin, that was 1637, okay? When was it solved by Andrew Wiles? 1994. So that that's giving an example that sometimes in mathematics problems stay around for a very long time, but that doesn't mean they can't be solved. They might be solved. Um, and indeed, there are lots of ideas in complexity theory. We learn incrementally small things. We do need new ideas, but... Uh, there's no inherent reason to believe um, that we can't solve it. And, and coming back to Kolva's um, point about independence, some people have tried to actually prove, for example, that P versus NP is independent maybe of the axioms of natural numbers. And actually there was a lot of trouble with that kind of, um, that, that didn't sort of work out. There are kind of mathematical reasons why that seems not to be any easier than actually resolving the problem.
0: We're talking about who you're talking about. <laughs> P and NP as if it's uh, Australia and Britain. But actually there's gradations between, aren't there? So we haven't gone into that. There must be ways in which they are a ra- bit closer, a bit closer, a bit closer, but not quite. And there's a, there's a cut-off point where P... Bec- who You're looking at each other. Am and, uh, I asking the right question? There's questions? some very
2: interesting uh, examples. So the factorization problem is an interesting problem of something that's thought to be of intermediate difficulty. We don't know how to solve it. But if somebody could find a clever way of solving it, we wouldn't be able to translate that into a, into an algorithm for solving the travelling salesman problem because it's, it seems to be an easier problem. There's another problem, actually. This is a rather sort of timely discussion called the graph isomorphism problem. I won't say exactly what that is, but I'll just say it's a very important problem that was thought of as intermediate. And there's a little rumour going around, um, as of yesterday or so, that uh, somebody may have not, not completely solved it but made an absolutely massive advance in our understanding so of this. So this is uh, breaking news, isn't it? This is yes, actually, yes. <laughs> yesterday. Wait till next Tuesday <laughs> and then uh, this person is giving a talk at the University of Chicago. Um, and so what's the, well, tell us about it. What's, what's good about this? Well, the graph isomorphism problem, roughly speaking, is the following. You're given two networks, as I was talking about before. You have nodes and links. And you want to tell whether they're basically the same network. So whether if you can just re- rearrange the nodes on one side, you can produce a network that's identical to the one on the other side. And for various reasons, that doesn't seem to be NP-complete, but it is NP. If someone gives you a candidate uh, rearrangement of the nodes, you can easily check whether the two networks are the same. Um, and what this person may or may not have done he's a famous mathematician and so the rumour seems quite reliable uh, is come up with an algorithm that is what they call quasi-polynomial time which we can think of as being almost very efficient and and for many intents and purposes it's actually You have a good time, don't you?
0: It sounds sounds very enjoyable, really (laughs) Uh, Colbert, you want to... uh, If it transpires... That the possibility that P is found to equal NP after three or four hundred years which let us point it's in the right direction these things take a bit of time and everything that can be checked out can also be found what are the practical applications
1: Okay. Implications, sorry. Implications. I'm going I'm to hedge my bets slightly here because it depends on how it's found that P is equal to NP. But let's imagine, for the sake of mental argument, that we find a nice constructive way of showing that P is equal to NP and we find fast algorithms to solve all of these problems. Um, I'll give you one good thing and one bad thing. So the one bad thing, we've already mentioned this, all internet security breaks instantly. Why? Um, because we can now factorise... Um, numbers that are products of two very big primes and that's the basis for all of our current cryptography so we would need a different way of exchanging information secretly that's the bad thing the good thing is that almost every single thing you buy becomes cheaper because some of the problems that are in NP that are difficult to deal with at the moment are scheduling tasks and factories um transporting goods between factories so imagine say a mobile phone there's going to be raw materials brought in from all over the world, doing that transportation becomes more efficient, the factory needs to maintain stock levels, doing that becomes more efficient, chips need to be designed, taking up as little room as possible, as powerful as possible, that becomes more efficient, so at every single step of the production chain of a complicated object, we could be saving significant amounts of money, so that would be the good trade off for the fact that you could no longer shop on the internet so easily (laughs) Would you like to add to that, Natalie?
3: Sure. I I could tell you a little bit more about the um, cryptography thing because I think that perhaps people would like to know a little bit how that works. So, you know, what's the connection between that and factoring? And let me just give you a little bit more information about it. So when you buy something on Amazon or something like that, um, all of these applications use what's called public key cryptography. So you wouldn't like it if you had to phone up Amazon and make a secret code and then send them your credit card. So what happens instead is that Amazon produces something called a public key and something called a private key. And your credit card gets encrypted with the public key, but they've got the private key and can decrypt it. There's lots of eavesdropping, so people do see the encrypted message. Um, but because we think you can't factor, they aren't able to do the decryption. So if we had p and n p different, factoring is easy. It means that anybody who eavesdrops would be able to get your credit card number. So that's... Um, OK, so that's... That's, that's the end of that. The but end you that. don't
2: see it as a real possibility, Dutta, that P will equal NP. They're I different... myself think it's incredibly unlikely. Yeah. I just wanted actually to introduce one more um, application that is practical for the three of us, although maybe not necessarily <laughs> for the... So one NP, um, NP problem is, here is a, a, a problem, a mathematical problem you would like to solve, Um find a proof that is not too long and complicated. Now, if somebody gives you a proof that's not too long and complicated, it is an easy matter to check whether it is a correct proof of the problem. So um, that means that the problem of finding proofs, which is what we mathematicians do for a living, is in NP. So if P turned out to equal NP with the qualifications that Colbert talked about, basically we'd be out of a job because computers (laughs) could just very, very easily uh, do all the work that we, uh, at the moment, uh, sweat away Doing in our offices. Colmor.
1: So I'd like to point out that, yeah, I mean, if P was equal to NP and you could do so effectively, you could claim all of the Clay mathematics prizes because you'd be able to run your little bit of code um, and generate short proofs for all of the remaining ones. <laughs> Donald Knuth, the most famous computer scientist, arguably uh, in the last few decades, has said he thinks it's so unlikely that P is equal to NP that the first person who shows that, he will award them the prize of one live turkey <laughs> in addition to the million dollars. <laughs> mm. and,
3: no. <laughs> One more thing is, if it turned out that P was not equal to NP, that would be excellent for our understanding, but it would merely be the first step, because in fact, what we do know is that if they if they turned out to be different, actually we know that there's an infinite number of problem difficulties between them, and we haven't even gotten there, but there's actually loads of difficulties of problems above NP, and lots of problems that are even harder that we want to understand. So if we resolved this and found that P is not equal to NP, that would be a good first step in our understanding of the difficulty of problems.
0: What would computers have to do to resolve this problem? I mean, is there just as Turing imagined the whole caboose, and so others were working at that time too, we mustn't be too chauvinistic about it but we're (laughs) using him as as a clear there was another uh, American chapter, but never he imagined it. Can you imagine, or do you imagine, a solution? Do you sit down and say, right uh, we can't get there, but I imagine it's this solution, just like he imagined this computer.
2: Um I think we can't we don't have some sort of model of an imaginary computer that solves NP problems with ease. Uh I think in a sense from the mathematical point of view whether or not you actually have instantiations of the computer concept as real computers is not so important, actually. Um, so I don't think there's really an analogy to be drawn there exactly. Now we've, we've got our model of computation and we've got computers. So,
1: so people did briefly become optimistic that quantum computers might be able to uh, quantum solve computers. quantum computers. Yeah. So quantum computers are beginning to exist, that they might be able to solve the NP-complete problems, but that's looking increasingly unlikely. They can solve problems like integer factorization, but as has already been mentioned, we don't think that's NP-complete. Um, so it doesn't look like Madam Quantum Spookiness is going to going to fix anything for us soon.
0: I'm I'm quite used to a world where where you where, where mathematicians say oh we'll get there we will solve these <laughs> things and now I'm confronted by a mountain of uh, of stuff that could be so much better if you could solve this but <laughs> not not.
3: Well, I mean, we may solve it, but probably, probably we'll solve it by showing that P is not equal to NP rather than showing that they are the so same.
2: confirm our existing belief that these problems are genuinely hard. Hmm. <laughs> 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 well, uh, I think... I think I've got. We've got. You've got through that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you very much for getting through it. And uh, I'll take the egg and you take the <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you to Leslie Ann Goldberg, Timothy Gowers, and Colver Rony Dougal. Next week we'll be talking about the great sea battle of Lepanto, 1571, between the Ottomans and the Holy League. And thank you for listening.
1: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
3: <laughs> the word algorithm... I, I, I got completely remember, frozen on right, that. OK, I, I'll tell yeah. you where it comes from, but I, I actually can't pronounce it. Well, it comes from... It comes from Galismi. 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 I know, I know exactly. that bit. And the reason is because he was... Um, it's his surname. He was called algorithm. It's Algorithmic. Algorithmic. But why it was named after him is he was doing equation solving and he was giving step-by-step instructions um, for solving these sets of equations... And so that's why algorithm is named after his name. That's oh, it. Right. And yeah. well, that would
0: have been nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> I
3: think
2: that word does go back.
0: Yeah, but yeah. I'm not sure if Turing would, would actually, actually have used
3: it. Actually, I know one more thing that they might like to know, and that is that... Um, we've talked about solving np complete problems as in solving them perfectly but there's a whole field of study about how difficult they are to approximately solve so instead of getting the traveling salesman solution optimally instead getting within some fraction and there's lots of results about that and that's a whole another another field yeah. no, the, i mean
1: sorry no go to
2: another sort of interesting aspect of this is that the, unlike with many mass problems the p versus np problem um, is one where people have a very precise idea of why it is that we are finding it so hard to decide whether P does yeah. or doesn't equal NP, and uh, uh, so uh, some mathematicians have actually produced a very precise paper. It's called "Natural Proofs," in which they've shown, roughly speaking, that any proof that P doesn't equal NP would have to be incredibly strange. <laughs> and uh, this is a, you can give precise meaning to it. the words "incredibly strange" here. Uh, so but we, we do... sort of know it's a, it deserves its million-dollar price tag yeah. somehow.
0: But, but mathematics does move into different dimensions of thought now and then, doesn't it? I mean,
2: Yes, sometimes somebody will come up with a off-the-wall sort of idea that nobody expected that well, this, really changes the way we this do This whole
1: things. thing came out of one of those, because this whole thing came out of Gödel showing that Hilbert's problem wasn't solvable, and, and, and this big 20th century shift in mathematics to realise that it's not just the case that all problems have solutions, some problems can't be dealt with within your current system of axioms. That was girdle working and then Turing picked up on it for his Turing machines because he was trying to go from proofs to algorithms and processes um, so it was one of those big paradigm shifts that set this whole process off and it might well be that we need another big paradigm shift yeah. to, to bring it to completion. And there have been some, some attempts
3: like a, perhaps um, a few years ago a very exciting thing was this thing called geometric complexity theory where people trying to reduce this problem to algebraic geometry and I, I guess the consensus is that it hasn't worked at least yet, um, but, but there's there's lots of different kind of angles on it. The natural proofs is about circuit complexity, and then there's um, there's some kind of people doing proof complexity. There are lots of different attacks. So there's no
0: sense in which you're saying, look, we can't solve this, we're, we're going to give up trying to solve this. No. no.
2: I think no. actually some of the experts, they do say, well, I can't afford to spend too much of my time on this problem because it's such a hard problem and I don't want to end up with no publications whatsoever. <laughs> so I think um, most theoretical computer scientists sort of ration the time they spend on <laughs> the problem <laughs> uh, and spend a, some of their time working on yes, slightly I'm less sure ambitious. Sure,
0: sir, by the <laughs> time I, <need> <laughs> so, like, I finished yeah. the novel, instead of sitting trying to write the greatest novel ever written and <laughs> never write anything. <laughs> exactly. yeah, it's a little yeah. bit yeah. like that. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Yes, Simon. I think a uh, uh, double brandy and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tea, tea will, fine, tea will
1: be fine. There are many more science and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4.